Hey, I'm John Dervage with Our Revolution Colorado Springs, and with me is Randy McCallion, who's running for Colorado Senate District 10. Uh, can you explain to me a little bit about where that district actually is and what really the Colorado Senate does? <laughs> yeah, I'd love to. So District 10, Senate District 10, is here in Colorado Springs. And rough boundaries are I-25 to about Powers and one part of Mark Chapel. Okay. And then about Briar Gate-ish down to right under Palmer Park, kind of Constitution. Um, so it gets a little jagged, but that's kind of the square of Senate District 10. And uh, so what does the state Senate do? So great question, because a lot of people, when I tell them I'm running for, you know, Colorado Senate, they say, you know, oh, well, I'm voting for so-and-so in the U.S. Senate race, right? Yeah. And I'm like, oh, no, I'm running for the Colorado State Legislature. So uh, in politics, we have the same setup at the state level as we do at the federal level. Okay. So we have a House, we have a Senate, and then we have a governor instead of a president. Yeah. Um, we actually have that same sort of setup in many cases at the city level as well. You'll have your city council um, and your mayor is kind of how that, so you always have those multiple realms of checks and balances. Uh, so the, just like at the federal level, you've got your house, which is the larger represented, you know, um, there's a lot higher number of them, right? Yeah, so, uh, it's like population. Yeah, and they, I think, represent about, I want to say 60,000, but don't quote me on that. What I know is the Senate better, and so I represent right now about 180,000 people. Um, once we redo the census, that will probably change a little. Um, so as a senator, just like any representative, you put forward bills. So if they come from the House, from someone else, you know, you're going to look at them before they pass through the Senate. Yep. But you also propose your own bills, which would then go back to the House. Uh, so everyone has to vote on them, just like the federal government. So, uh, yeah. So what, the what, like, are your main proposals that are like, what is your platform that you're running on? Yeah, so I am running my, my quick little, you know, pieces are strong families, affordable health care, and protecting Colorado. Uh, all of those get much deeper, but mm. in general, really strengthening children and families. I really see a lot of what we're struggling with uh, in our state, you know, in our, our city, in our state, and in our country, as us not really um, respecting and valuing how much the family needs support and how much children need, period, how yeah. much children need. Yeah. <laughs> um, so I have two young kids, and it's me and my husband most of the time. And we do have a strong family in the area that helps us, so we have more than what most people have in that realm. And it is still extremely difficult to give our children all the love and attention that they need to truly grow at the level of health that children need yeah. to grow mm -hmm. into truly healthy adults. We are failing our children in this country, and it's creating... Uh, unhealthy adults. It's creating our mental health crisis and you know we're I was just in an event the other day and they were talking about screening children in elementary school and how about 20% of children sometime in our school age realm 20% of children have some sort of mental health issue already so whether it's a crisis issue or whether it's you know depression or so 20%, one in five of our children have a mental health issue. Yeah. And they were talking about what do we do to help with that? And I was just like, 
where's it coming from? Yeah. Right? Like, if we're going to talk... Preventative care rather than yes. addressing your problem. And they were talking that. about prevention, but they were talking about screening in school. And so I was just... I was, my argument is start at the beginning, right? Mm -hmm. We are failing women in pregnancy and childbirth to even begin there, because yeah. that's when the human starts, right? You're influenced yeah. by what your mother goes through. Um, so just that's really where Strong Families comes for me, is really starting at the beginning with the knowledge I have, my background in public health, uh, and the experience I bring, which is over 10 years of working with families in their homes, um, okay. doing a whole range of things. And so we can, we can dive into that a little bit. So that's my Strong Families. Affordable health care. I come from a background in public health. Uh, that's what my master's degree is in. Mm -hmm. And I... Uh, Healthcare must be accessible to all people. And what I see that I don't hear very often that I think is really important that I bring to the table is that affordable healthcare is not our only battle. Making sure that everyone gets healthcare is not going to solve every problem that we're seeing with health in our country right now um, or our state. Because the healthcare system we have right now, not only being the most expensive, it's the worst. Yeah. So some people, I think, believe that just by giving more people health care, that will get better. The worst part of it, our health care being the worst, is because we aren't following evidence-based protocols throughout hospitals in the country. We aren't using the most up-to-date science and uh, medical research to do what patients need. And so a really simple example of this, we have known for decades that having too high of a C-section rate is more dangerous for mothers and children than having C-sections, right? So we know some C-sections save mothers and babies. It's important. It's yeah. something important. But we have overused it, and we're still overusing it, even though we've known for 30-plus years that we were overusing them and that using them too much causes more risks to major surgery. Yeah. So very simply, the World Health Organization and a ton of research shows that no place of care should have more than like a 15 to 20 percent c-section rate okay. in the united states and in colorado we've been sitting at around 30 to 33 percent for about 15 to 20 years mm -hmm. so we've known this and yet we're doing almost double the amount of surgeries that we should be doing this is more expensive and it creates worse patient outcomes yeah so taking that one little example and expanding it to all of healthcare because all of healthcare is influenced by this. Mm -hmm. um, so for me, I say affordable healthcare because that's where I think a lot of people connect and get it right now. Yeah. But to me, it's also about improving the healthcare that we're receiving because it is out of control. There aren't enough um, requirements that hospitals follow evidence-based practices or that doctors do. We've really given them a lot of freedom. Yeah. That's damaging us. Uh, and then my final one, Protecting Colorado, really fits into my passion for the planet, for the earth, for living things. I have a lot of empathy. Um, I know how important uh, all of everything is, right? We need air to breathe. We need for clean water to live. Yeah. Uh, you can only go three days without water, right? So, like, critical. Um, I love Colorado deeply. I grew up here. Um, I wasn't born here, but we moved here very young when I was... As an army brat. Yeah. And so I've always loved Colorado. I love the mountains. Now living in Sea Springs where you know you drive up over like Woodman. Yeah. And just the majesty of the mountains just makes me feel so humble and small. Yeah, you like want to protect that. And the natural and resources yeah. too, like 
I mean, I've been, I lived in a few different places in the Midwest, and I gotta say, nothing compares to here. We got Garden of the Gods, you got Pikes Peak, and like you said, yeah, you drive you drive west, and it's, it's beautiful. Amazing, yeah. amazing. And so, protecting Colorado, when I say that, is really about our health, our environment. Also, you know, everyone comes to Colorado for how beautiful it is, right? Our yeah. tourism industry is huge. Yeah. And protecting that. I mean, I think people deserve to come here and ski. Yeah. Uh, and to raft in the summer and hike and, you know? It'd be a little bit hard to ski in the winter if uh, we didn't have snow on the mountains. Right. I mean, so. we already hear about them. Some resort was just doing fake snow, starting yeah. early to try yeah. to get people to come ski early. And it's like, oh, I yeah. guess you can go fake snow growing, in Colorado. Growing up, growing up in Minnesota, uh, where all of the resorts use fake snow, you don't want to use that. you got fresh powder here, <laughs> that's for sure. Yeah, so. yeah. Yeah, so going back to your first point, uh, you know the fa- the family's aspect. Something I always wonder about is how much you know. A lot of families have to like have the dual income from the you know, the mother and the father, and they have, that means they have to put their kid through childcare, daycare. That's just so expensive. It can be so hard to you know find the right place. And is is that like you know part of what you're talking about as well with that you know strengthening the families and protecting the families? Absolutely, absolutely. So. Uh, let's let's dive into that. In this state and country, um, one in four women return to work within two weeks, and that's out of financial necessity, yeah. not choice, mm-hmm. right? So, um, one in three women remember having a major abdominal surgery to have their child, and they're returning to work within two weeks of having that baby. So, not only have you not healed, um, you also aren't getting the chance to be with your baby, yeah. and for babies and mothers, parents, that's traumatic. That actually creates trauma in the brain for a child when we're separating them from their mother for eight plus hours a day. And to add to that now, most daycare providers don't take children till six to eight weeks. So we just got my uh, almost two-year-old into daycare and we toured, I wanna say nine facilities in the area. Mm -hmm. We had already called like 15 when we made our list. We toured nine. We were not very impressed with a few, which really broke my heart because there are children in those facilities and they were less expensive, so more affordable for some families, but it was unacceptable to me that some children now receive this lower level of care, mm-hmm. you know, darker rooms, stains, it smells bad. Um, you just know and you see some of the resources that the daycare has and the children don't have these beautiful colorful materials Mm. they've got plastic missing the pieces it's not okay like those those children did nothing to deserve being treated less than another child and their entire future they have less opportunity now because we as adults didn't protect their right to grow and thrive from the beginning. Mm -hmm. And just because their parents have a little less money and can't afford it, these children are put in a place that's less optimal to their development. So we got one in four women returning to work in two weeks. Most childcare centers only take children at six to eight weeks. Yeah. Okay, so where are you putting your kid? (laughs) Let alone all that, we shouldn't even be having to put our children in childcare if we don't want to. And Mm -hmm. a good majority of moms do not want to separate from their brand new baby or go back to work healing within two weeks, right? Or four weeks or eight weeks or, you know, I think I was truly ready to return to something by like nine months to a year. I mean, kids don't sleep well. (laughs) So if they don't sleep well, you don't sleep well, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think another aspect of this too is like just 
how much people have to worry about their income and like just like I got to work those 40 hours a lot of people work way more than 40 hours and like they just don't have the time to spend with their children and like compared to other countries like the work-life balance aspect is a lot more favorable you know towards the, the families and spending time and having that you know downtime and recreation you know what are your policies or your plans to try to combat that yeah it's uh what is our purpose in life if it's not to be together, right? Yeah. And we claim, and I grew up believing, that our country, you know, and, and I know I'm running for states in it, but very much, like, Colorado is not that much better than the country as a whole in any of this. So um, I want to see that we value families like we claim we do, right? And yeah. that we all want to protect the children, right? And we're not doing anything policy-wise to do that. So, one policy I have been very supportive of for over 15 years <laughs> is paid family leave. Yeah. Uh, and have been working towards this, you know, um, advocating for it for so long because it really is a simple solution to a lot of these problems. And we are the last developed country in the world to not offer paid family leave. There are actually a number of not developed countries that already offer paid leave as well. <laughs> Uh, at varying degrees, right? We offer none. Uh, there are a few states in the nation that offer something, like California is yeah. one of them. So we, in Colorado, uh, Senator Faith Winter is one of the ones, she has two young children, and she has been working really hard to get the Family Act um, yeah. passed in Colorado. And the Family Act, and what we should say about family leave, too, is that this is not just for parents who just had a baby or adopted a baby, you know, got a kid in some way. It's also for people who have any sort of family emergency because it's we all want to take care of our family mm. when they're hurt or sick uh, and that includes a mental health crisis. So the Family Act that we're working towards in Colorado will cover things like um, if an elderly parent has an accident, a fall, right, and needs surgery, needs care, that the Family Act will cover that. So this is really encompassing all the pieces of family, whomever you choose to call family and you love, yeah. and showing that we truly do value your ability to care for your family when they're sick. That it is more important for family to care for one another and support one another. Yeah, hey, sorry about that. We were having some technical difficulties with our camera. We're just going to continue with where we left off. I think you were talking about uh, like what Colorado is doing for family leave. Yeah, so... Uh, Last year the bill was going through the legislature and they decided to kind of pause it and do a study to okay. see what the impact would be. Uh, and from my understanding it's because some big business lobbyists got in there and said that this was going to hurt their business. And so the way I feel about that, it really frustrates me because, so we have about 60,000 babies born a year in Colorado. So if we think that one-fourth are going into some sort of childcare without their mom by two weeks, that's about 15,000 babies a year who are being hurt the most from our lack as adults of caring for them in the way we need to. Yeah. So I see this as we've kicked the can down the road again and we're going to have thousands and thousands more babies and families struggle and suffer so that we can do a little study to see how this is going to impact businesses. Yeah. Businesses won't function if we don't have healthy people. So we need to go to the beginning. Um, so we are still working on the Family Act in Colorado, thanks to Senator Faith Winter and some others.
but unfortunately right now we're kind of stuck at studying what it will look like. Yeah, and I mean, like, you mentioned how a lot of other, if not what you said, every other modern country, it's not even developed, developing yeah. countries have this, and I mean, they have businesses, right? Right. And they're still functioning, I think. Right. They're I doing very well. Yeah, so I mean, it doesn't really seem like it makes a lot of sense that this is going to like be the destruction of our corporation. Yeah, in America. we've seen a lot too that you know uh, the retention of employees is much better. For example, yeah, mental health of your employees is better. Yeah, that's actually another good point because my my company that I work for they offer uh, like a nine eighty schedule, so you get you work nine hours a day, but you get every other Friday off. Oh, so there are some times where you get like a three day weekend, which is like extremely helpful, like when you're planning vacations and things. And I mean, like by no means is that like a replacement for you know family, you know paid leave but I mean what we've seen at that or our company is like employees have loved it like yeah. they, they fight to keep that because once you implement something like that and everyone loves it it's kind of hard to go back yep so, more and more people are really wanting that flexible work environment mm -hmm. we can get our work done and people work better when they're respected right yeah. when you feel that your family life or your outside life is respected and that you are an adult enough to decide how to manage your work time and your away time. And yeah. uh, so I do love that when jobs are flexible in some way, you know, some here and there, the rare bird occasionally allows like parents to bring children to work or has yeah. a childcare facility on site. What a fantastic idea. Mm -hmm. But we're not really going to see more of those things until we have parents, mothers, women, people with children, caregivers leading as much as people who haven't had that before lead. Yeah. So your next point, I believe, was like overall with healthcare in America, or in specifically in Colorado, and you brought up that, you know, the, you mentioned the, um, you know, having to do the high C-section rate in the state. What's like, you know, the driver for that? Like, why is Colorado, you know, in your opinion or facts, what's, why is it higher than the national average? Um, I don't think we're actually higher than the national average, but we're okay. somewhere right near the net. We're not doing like really well. Oh, well we're we're not standing out. You mentioned is a world average, and you said like twenty percent. We're like thirty. It's where we should be. Where we should Our be. Our goal okay. is should be no more than twenty percent. Okay. Yeah. So, um, a part of that issue, it's really like the history of medical care plays into this. So yeah. that's big and that's long, but just generally that we have given a lot of power to the medical community that you know we've got this white coat they know everything kind of thing and there's you know been a lot of money in medicine we know that there's a lot of money in politics that comes from lobbying from medicine so I see a lot of that without being able to give like specifics per se but I see a lot of that really fitting in with why our medical community has gotten a little out of control mm -hmm. because they really have just been able to practice how they want and for a long time medicine and even today is an experiment I mean yeah. we're still learning all the time right sure. yeah. and so we're always in an experimental stage really with Western medicine and we've given a lot of power to that experimental stage I think and I believe from what I've seen in public health and my education and working in the healthcare system, uh, both on an individual level, so I've supported families through childbirth in hospitals, birth centers, and at home, yeah. but I've also worked in a statewide quality improvement uh, company position, collaborative, and we worked with hospitals across a major state to get them to practice evidence-based care. 
So my job was literally to try to convince doctors and hospitals to practice by the evidence because it saved mothers and babies' lives mm -hmm. and it had better outcomes for babies. Yeah. But we had no ability to uh, force this, right? Even though it was like, look, babies do better if you don't take them electively before 39 or 40 weeks. And we had all this evidence and yet we had no ability because the legislature in that state hadn't passed anything that gave power to anyone besides the medical community. Mm. So they can decide when they want to induce a patient, when they might want to do you know, this surgery or that surgery. Some hospitals are doing well, but that's individual leadership. And yeah. in some states, you know, California is doing better than other states because they have taken control of this and started doing regulation. Their maternity care system is doing better than many in the country because they've done things like, for example, uh, passing legislation that all hospitals must move towards baby-friendly care. Mm -hmm. So baby-friendly care is just 10 steps that are evidence-based that shows that this is better for moms and babies, these 10 steps that a hospital does. Yeah. Hospitals can choose to do this if they want, right? Okay. I like what California did when they said all hospitals must move to this evidence-based care by blank year. Yeah. So we're requiring that they have protocols, that they look at the evidence, and that they start treating patients better to get better outcomes. Mm -hmm. I don't think that's unreasonable. No, I mean, like, again, standardization in that sense, especially when it comes to something so important as, like, you know, child care, like pregnancy care, yeah. seems uh, like a pretty good idea. Because I know there can be a lot of differences between, you know, certain doctors recommend certain things, and it's, like, not always best for that situation. Even, like, each pregnancy is unique, right? Like, each pregnancy is up to that individual. And, like, to have, like, a standardization or a doctor say, like, you know, or I should say a doctor, say like you need to do it this way or like you know, yeah. offer kind of false information or something that doesn't necessarily work for them. I mean, I could see it being damaging. Yeah. Would like these standardizations, I mean, it's, you say it's evidence-based, so is it coming, well like what, where is that evidence coming from in particular? Yeah, so we have tons of data now from public health. Uh, it's medical research, but usually done by people more in the public health sector. So sometimes yeah. that's you know a doctor with a public health degree as well. But from my education in public health, we were just beginning to try to integrate medicine and public health. Um, when really public health should be a part of everything. You know, yeah. we should be looking at population data, but also individual data. Um, and so. The data, the evidence comes from these studies population-wide, you know, so like to go back to our example of C-sections, we're able to see at a massive level that this surgery used when it's not necessary has bad repercussions. It's not that you're going to see it for each individual kid or mom, it's that when you pool this data together you're going to start seeing that babies are taken a little bit too early and they have more trouble breathing, um, which can lead to more trouble breastfeeding, yeah. which can also, you know, lead to a worse start in life. And some babies that are born too early, which sometimes C-sections lead to. So sometimes when babies are born too early, they also have worse outcomes in school. Yeah. So you're not going to see this necessarily for an individual, but that's where that population data comes in, that public health data. I see. And public health research shows that when medical data comes out and we know what the best practice is, it takes about 20 years to get that new evidence into practice. Yeah. And I really think we need to cut that time down. When we know something's not right to be doing, or here's the better way to do it, yeah. that should be happening a little faster than 20 years. Yeah. That's a whole generation yeah. being impacted by the wrong care, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah.
So we're going to take a quick break. Uh, when we come back, we'll continue talking about medical treatment and uh, go into the cost of it. And then we'll transition into the climate and uh, environment for Colorado. Thank you. Hey, this is John. Just as a reminder that our revolution, Colorado Springs, is 100% volunteer and donation-based. So if you like what you're hearing with these interviews, uh, you can go on our website at ourrevolutioncs.com, uh, hit the donate button. You know, this that really helps us out, plan future events, gets better equipment for more interviews and so on. So uh, we also have a lot of events going on this month uh, and into February. Uh, we have a debate watch party. We're going to have a, probably a debate watch party for every debate. Uh, so feel free to, to join us there. We also have a lot of canvassing events going on for um, Bernie Sanders, as well as uh, we'll have future canvassing events for other candidates that either we endorse or we feel share our sets of uh, principles and values uh, and really our you know, progressive message. So continue to look at our revolutioncs.com, check out our events, and you can join us there. Hope you enjoy our second half of our interview with Randy McCallion, who's running for Colorado Senate District 10. Thank you. Hey, uh, so we're back with Randy McCallion, who's running for uh, Colorado Senate District 10. So uh, you mentioned in, in the little intro before about the affordableness of health care. Uh, and, you know, I think a big, ad I'm a big advocate for Medicare for all. I think a lot of, I think the polls show that the majority of the country is. Uh, what are your What are your stances on Medicare for all as a, a way to provide affordable uh, health care to the most people in America? Yeah. yeah, I think it's a structure we already have in place, and so that is a great way forward to making sure we provide health care to everyone. Yeah. Um, you know, I think when I see people have an issue with it, it's because of something probably inaccurate or incorrect that they've heard. And so, you know, if some people just want it to be called something different, that's fine. But we already have the structure in place. Yeah. And so to go back to my area of expertise, 50% of births in our country right now are covered by Medicaid care. Medicaid. Medicaid. Which one's the, care is older, so Medicaid. Yeah, Medicaid, yeah. Medicaid. Um, so both of those are the are a very similar system. And yeah. I, when we say Medicaid for all or Medicare for all, I see them as very similar. Yeah. So just to, for me to clarify that when I interchange them, just expanding the government-led health insurance system yeah. to everyone. So 50% of births are already taking place through Medicaid. Mm -hmm. So it's like, I mean, we're already doing half of them. Yeah. You know? <laughs> Um, so I absolutely am in favor of all people having access to health care, and I do think the simplest way to do that is to expand through the system we already have set up for such a massive chunk of our population. Yeah, because I think like we look at areas that are specifically targeted, or at least have the most issues with you know, medical debt, and it's largely minority communities. There's a lot of a lot of minority communities have underfunded hospitals, which kind of gets back into what we were talking about before with different standards of treatment. But also, like they just can't afford it because you know they have so many other things they're worried about, and obviously with social injustice uh, in this country. Uh, so, what are your thoughts on that aspect of uh, Medicare for all and how it can go to benefit uh, you know the minorities in this country? Yeah, we need to work on all the structural and systemic and institutionalized systems that we have built this country on yeah. that have created these health disparities. 
black women and black infants die at three to four times the rate of their white counterparts. Um, so in childbirth and the first year postpartum and the first year of a child's life, black infants are just three to four times more likely than their white counterpart to die. None of that is genetic yeah. whatsoever. It's systemic and institutionalized racism. And there are a couple really well done studies to show that, that I, that I studied back in public health. And where I see some of that, and so many of these are such convoluted issues, you know, when you've yeah. built an entire system off racism, mm -hmm. it's not going to take one or two tweaks, right? We're going to have to do a lot to solve this. But one of them is ensuring that we have access, that everyone has access to healthcare, affordable, and improving the healthcare system. Yeah. And so a great example in my field to do that is increasing access to midwives. So midwives are less expensive. They spend more time with the patients and clients that they serve. They have better outcomes. Um, and especially for women, children, families of color, birthing people of color, those uh, benefits are even greater. Uh, at this time, we see that it's mostly the white middle class women that are able to afford that type of care. Yeah. And I would really like to see more support towards midwives of color, black midwives, really bringing back that movement that yeah. was crushed over, you know, a uh, hundred or so years ago by the medical community. And that will save us money. So yeah, not only will it save Midwives, lives, that's the same as like, like a doula, right? Different. different. So a doula okay. is not clinical. So a midwife okay. is more similar to a doctor in okay. the sense that she can manage all the clinical aspects of birth. A doula is a support person. All right. So I like to relate that to like your sister, who's yeah. given birth before, she's there for you. Um, and so women have always supported women through childbirth, and it's only really been in the last hundred years of the medicalization of childbirth that we've seen women pulled out of the childbirth system and the support. And so I usually describe it as a doula was sort of created again in the sense that we needed women to support other women in childbirth, mm -hmm. so we sort of rebirthed this doula idea so that women could support women in childbirth again. Yeah. Um, it's such a cheap intervention. Uh, there's a quote that said, if a doula were a drug, it would be unethical not to use it. Yeah. So doulas decrease C-section rates, improve your outcomes in birth, decrease your pain, uh, so many great things. And um, we even see hospitals banning doulas right now. It's not just because okay. they don't want another person, but like even doulas, like there's a certification process, right? Like for some, for some, yeah, yeah. you could just be call yourself a doula. You, so there's not a great regulation in that industry right now. It's yeah. still kind of a free for all. Uh, okay. But there are certificates, there are programs. That so I mean, they, and they, yeah, so they're just not allowed in the medical because they're not fa friends or family or yeah. The hospital just likes to restrict women's rights. Yeah. That seems uh, That's really yeah, as simple as that. Wow, is that something that happens in this country? Uh, <laughs> right. Yeah, so going back... Uh, Reproductive freedom. Yeah. We can touch on that after, too. Uh, going back real quick, though, to uh, Medicare for All, are you for, like, a single-payer program? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, uh, I see that definitely as a way to keep... A, to create a more affordable healthcare system. So one really simple statistic to kind of point that out is that private health insurance has like an overhead administration fee of 20 to 30 percent depending on the, yep. the company so huge the amount that you're paying about 30 percent of what you're paying is for administration 
and uh, our government-led systems like Medicare and Medicaid are around 3% administration cost. Um, so right there, you're saving a huge amount of money done. Yeah. You know? And then if we implement evidence-based practices, so even something so simple, we just keep talking about maternal and child health. Imagine heart care, yeah. right? Cancer treatments, um, emergency getting, room care. Getting a, st- getting a stent or two. Yeah, like all the things that you're like, all the things that you can think of that people have received healthcare for, none of those are operating in a really optimal manner right now. So if we can start working in there to increase evidence-based practice, decrease unnecessary interventions in all care, and have a more affordable strategy like not paying so much for administrative costs, boom. Like yeah. We barely had to do anything, yeah. right? This yeah. just brought the cost down by fifty percent. Yeah, seems like a lot better system. So, uh, and the other, so other aspect, I know we touched on this just briefly before. Uh, you know, protecting a woman's right to choose. Like, obviously, Colorado does a pretty good job of having uh, facilities available, but across this country, and obviously with the Supreme Court the way it is, I know again this is Colorado Senate, not yeah. United States Senate. But we still serve as a model. But still, for yeah, the rest of the exactly. Country. Yeah. yeah. So, like, what are your stances on that? Are you willing to protect a woman's right to choose? Absolutely. I've been protecting women and children and our healthcare rights for over a decade. I believe that every individual has the right to choose what healthcare they receive. It is not the place of the government or the medical community to tell you which healthcare to receive. Yeah. Um, we are individuals. We have freedom. We have rights, and I will protect those. You get to choose what health care you have. An abortion is health care. Yeah. And that is the right of an individual to choose what happens to their body. As a government, you know, as a representative, I believe it is my role and the government's role to protect your health care choices, to ensure that you have the ability to decide what health care you need or want to receive. Yeah. But if your religion, for example, doesn't allow you or your you know your spiritual beliefs your religion mm-hmm. say not to get a blood transfusion that's your right yeah. and if that means you're not going to survive something and you've chosen that yeah that's your right to choose that but you deserve to have access to the care that you need and then to choose what it is you yeah. want and i mean you can't have your faith restrict other people who may not have that faith their rights right i mean absolutely that, there's a separation of church and state for a reason and i think that's there was or there and was we need it back. <laughs> yeah i should say yeah I should definitely preface that but there, yeah. there's an intention to have that yeah. but yeah we have that in colorado we're we're struggling with that in other places right but colorado is doing a fairly good job of protecting that for us right now yeah and kind of transitioning that something i think colorado has done a fairly good job of protecting but probably can definitely have room for improvement is our climate and our environment as a whole. Like obviously, like we said earlier, there's a lot of tourism that uh, the beauty of Colorado brings in and just you don't want to see drills and mining equipment in Garden of the Gods. Uh, But, you know, there are some people in the state that do want to, you know, increase drilling and increase fracking. What are your stances on, you know, fracking in particular? Yeah, uh, so, the first way that I came into, uh, I guess we should just say the oil and gas industry, right, learning about it was through pollution in public health. Yeah. So with my, you know, my background in public health, I'm really interested in that population stuff, but working with people on an individual level. And when I started seeing a lot of research about how pollution impacts pregnancy, for example, or children, Mm -hmm. and some of these examples were like, you know, how many children near Silicon Valley had asthma, 
So these were some of the first things that I was exposed to that I just started saying, like, this is unjust. Yeah. Now that we know this, which I sort of feel like we should have known in the first place, pollution will probably cause some problems. But now that we know this, what are we doing about it? And in Colorado, we are not doing enough. For example, we all, I think, believe that Colorado is a very healthy nation, and I definitely used to, or state, and I definitely used to believe that. Yeah. And I, you know, more recently found out that we're ranked 46th in the nation for air quality. That's like good. Right. So you like look outside. <laughs> I mean, because the higher ele- uh, elevation plays in that too, right? Because like it doesn't dif- uh, like doesn't like dissolve or move away. Mm, as well. And like our mountains blocking Block it, yeah. kind of the wind, right? Because you see that pollution cloud yeah, up the against smog, the mountains, right? Yeah. yeah. And then a big wind comes through and blows it all away, and you're like, great, someone else has to deal with that now. Um, but pollution here is pollution everywhere. We all in the whole wide world share the same air, right? Mm. And so. We have badly polluted air, but that's going to impact the whole country, the whole world, ultimately. But very simply, we see the areas that have more pollution, and again, we're at 46, and we live in Colorado Springs, so this was along the corridor that has the worst air quality, and we're in that corridor, and uh, in Colorado Springs, we have the Martin Drake coal power plant. So it's literally burning coal right now, spewing pollutants out into the air and into the water, and we have that in the middle of our city. Yeah. So right in the downtown. Like it's not, it's right not even like it. It's like literally we want to build a, a sports stadium right next to our coal burning power plant. Right. Beautiful, Beautiful. tourism yeah. attraction, yeah. right? So we know now that air pollution like that increases the risk of dementia. It increases the risk of miscarriage. And then all the things we already knew, right? Lung issues, breathing issues, asthma, it also exacerbates heart disease. So all these things that we're seeing increases in, you know, we, none of us want to experience dementia. None yeah. of us want to have a parent go through dementia. Sure. Well, yeah. continuing our level of pollution, we are increasing the amount of us and our parents and someday our children that will experience dementia. Yeah. We don't need that. We don't need to be polluting like this. We have, I see so much opportunity for how we can shift the way we do things. Mm-hmm. You know, why are we spending the hundreds of millions of dollars on expanding I-25 instead of putting that money into a high-speed rail, to, or the high-speed rail yeah. that we already have in Denver that we could connect down here. For sure, yeah. um, And that would decrease, you know, pollution hugely and uh, also increase our ability to travel back and forth very rapidly. And it also... And be really cool. And just imagine, again, like, I always think about it, like, it would be so great to not be stuck in traffic, but instead of be, like, on your phone, you'd be more productive. We talked about productivity in workplace. Yeah. Like, you could just be more productive if you didn't have to worry about, you know, the bumper-to-bumper traffic. Yeah, and the pollution. It's just, like, spewing out while we all sit there, you know? And if I'm working in the Senate, when I'm working in the Senate, I have to drive to Denver all the time. Mm-hmm. And since I have two young children, I plan to do back and forth quite a bit. Yeah. And boy, would I love to just have a high-speed light rail that I wouldn't have to increase pollution, and I could work while I'm doing it, or yeah. rest, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know? Um, so I have also more recently learned how much of an oil and gas state Colorado is. And yeah. I didn't realize quite the extent that we were. Um, Recently, I was doing some research and opened a map of all the wells in Colorado, and you couldn't see Colorado. There was just blue and red dots everywhere, and I just, I, I was kind of like, well, wait, what, what do you mean? And I like zoomed in and zoomed out. Our whole state was covered, and it's you know abandoned wells, it's it's all that, and 
from what we know of, you know, children born within a close distance of a well are more likely to be premature and low birth weight. Those issues contribute to learning problems in the future in some children. Like, it's just unnecessary and it's yeah. not okay. And we can do things differently. And if we do them differently, that creates a whole new future, all new jobs, all new opportunity. Um, building a light rail, those cities of the future, you know, that are sustainable and carbon negative, sort of like AOC, that makes me really excited to think about, right? Yeah. But there's so much opportunity for us to change things for the positive. And for my children who don't really know what they're growing up in yet, yeah. right? They're sheltered. For them to not quite see the future I see right now, but maybe a little bit better of one, right? Yeah. Yeah, I think, you know, so I think Colorado, at least last election cycle, or in 2018, tried to pass, uh, you know, the anti-fracking. 112. 112, yeah. yeah, 112. So, you know, in your opinion, why do you think that failed? Like, you, so you mentioned, like, Colorado is a very energy-producing state, and there's a lot of money that's being pumped in for those. But, you know, is there anything else you think that, yeah. of a reason why Prop 112 uh, failed? Industry money. And that's another reason why the Family Act didn't pass. Yeah. Uh, industry money, big business. Um, I advocated for 112, I had a yard sign, stood on the street corner with my sign. Um, I was very in favor of 112, and what I heard and what I saw is the amount of fear that people had around losing their jobs. Yeah. And, you know, 112 didn't do a really good job of protecting, like, a transition yeah. uh, for people who are in that industry. And so I recognize that and I acknowledge that and I think we need to do better at making sure people feel safe with yeah. the transition. But I think that there was so much industry money poured into that to scare people and to mislead them. Yeah, and I think like that at that point I think alone was one of the if not the biggest reason why I think it failed. Yeah. And I mean the, the people talk about, you know, a just transition. Bernie Sanders climate proposal, he talks about 20 million new jobs being created and how he wants to try to get people who currently work in you know, fossil fuel industries to transition into like cleaner, cleaner I mean, more energy efficient jobs. Mm -hmm. You know, Because they already have experience. Because they already have experience, yeah. Energy I mean, like, industry. Yeah, so like, can, is that something you believe can, we can implement in Colorado? Absolutely, yeah. Where, when there's a will, there's a way. Yeah. And I just don't think we have enough state legislators right now that have that will. And I'm really excited for this next election because I think we're going to see a further push of people that weren't normally engaged in politics but that have that will now. So a lot of the younger generation especially, I think, and, mm -hmm. and my generation. Yeah. Um, you know, so UCCS is in Senate District 10, for example. So yeah. we plan to spend a lot of time at UCCS talking to students, making sure they feel heard, making sure they know that I have $80,000 of student debt. Yeah. Uh, I, I feel it, right? And yeah. I can't contribute well to the economy because we're burdened by that. Our children can't go into full-time daycare. Yeah. And a big part is because we, we pay $1,000 a month on student loans, yeah. and none of them are going down. Like, yeah. I'm staying level at 80000 Yeah, I mean, we mentioned before about, like, you know, like, kids are growing up with, you know, mental health concerns, like, you know, anxiety and depression. I mean, but there's a large part of our, you know, generations, too, that obviously have, and I think a lot of that is in part is that like disease of despair, yeah. the despair of climate change, the despair of, stu of uh, crippling debt or not having a job once you do get out of college. I mean like reaching out to college students and like trying to give them some hope I think is a really, yeah. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's a really hopeful message to send. So. And from the data we've crunched, UCCS is extremely, extremely underrepresented. 
So the precinct itself um, only had 700 registered voters last time. So there's probably about 1,200 to 2,000 people that live in that precinct and had 700 registered voters. Yeah. All the precincts around that were pretty low on voting too, and that's where a good amount of those students live, right? Mm. So just what do we know about data and the numbers we crunched, that younger generation, and even my generation, is super underrepresented. And I really think we've just been waiting for people that we feel like actually represent us. Yeah. Uh, and this district certainly hasn't had much of that. Yeah. Um, Can you tell me a little bit about your opponent? Like, I know it sounds like the the previous uh, person who held the position was Republican, but he has, like, term limits. So. Yeah. So we have term limits in Colorado. You can only serve eight years. So for a senator, yeah. that's two terms. And for a house rep, that's four, two mm -hmm. terms. And, but what I just learned because my opponent uh, served a full eight years in the House, and through his run, I learned that it's only consecutive term limit. Okay. So he took a break and then ran again for the House. So you can be a career politician in Colorado as long as you just take one break, you can run again and serve another full, uh, you know, full eight years. So my opponent uh, is a Republican, the current holder of the seat, term limited, so he'll be out. But the opponent I have right now has worked in the uh, Colorado legislature for quite a long time. He's definitely spent his career in politics. Um, he has, you know, in my opinion, he's just not really up to date on what's going on today yeah. and what's happening with families today. And what we know now through, you know, research and experience that children and families need to truly feel supported, mm -hmm. to grow into their full opportunity, and to be strong mental health-wise, to be strong to contribute to our democracy. Um, I just don't think he's connected to that anymore, yeah. you know? Uh, it's a totally different generation yeah. than ours. And so I think our district especially has been waiting for someone to more represent them. And, you know, we have almost 52% women in the district, but we've never had a woman represent the district. So I think it's time for that. Yeah. And this is definitely that environment right now in politics, right? Yeah. When more and more women running for office, because we're ready to yeah, and I think done. also obviously having, you know, progressive <laughs> policies as well that, you know, I think that you said speak to the, you know, people's needs, you know, yeah. people's fears. So, well, thank you for sitting down with us. Again, it was great talking to you. Uh, Randy McKaylin running for Colorado Senate District 10. Thank, thank you. you. It's great to be here.